Good morning, guys. If you are off uh, grabbing a cup of tea, cup of coffee, maybe you want to come and find your seats. Just to introduce myself, uh, for those of you that haven't met me, my name's Jamie. I lead the, uh, the site up in Bradley Stoke, where we're going to be uh, hosting our, uh, our up evening this, this, uh, this evening, in fact. So it's great to be back with you again. I was here three or four weeks ago, I think. Um, we were looking at the existence of God. And uh, I've got um, probably no less a challenging topic this morning. Um, so, but I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to be uh, speaking about this this morning. I'm going to start off, actually, just with a little bit of a pop quiz. Literally a pop quiz. Um, ben Welchman is not allowed. Oh, he's disappeared anyway. That's good. I'm saying he's not allowed to answer this question, not because his rock knowledge is so fantastic, but because he's actually heard me do this message before. So he knows the answer to the question. Okay, so I'm going to test your trivia. This week, no mobile phones needed for this, by the way. This week in 1971, what was top of the UK album charts? What was top of the UK album chart this week in 1971? Have a little confer with somebody next to you. Let's see if we can work it out. Okay, any ideas? Shout them out. Pardon? It wasn't bad out of hell. No, no, thankfully not. Wasn't the Bee Gees, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which is closer, probably neither. Stairway to heaven. Stairway to heaven. I, I see where you're going with this. Uh, no, no, it wasn't, in fact. Keep going. ABBA. ABBA. Yeah, not even closer, actually, I think, no. Beatles. Beatles, okay, we're warming up with Beatles. Imagine. Fantastic, John Lennon, well done. Okay, November 1971, John Lennon challenged the world with these lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. He goes on to challenge us to imagine a world without religion. And um, to be quite honest, uh, intrinsically for me as a person, I'm not sure I'm necessarily a very, I'm not sure I'm the religious type. I think intrinsically there's something about the atheistic worldview that I find quite appealing. I'm probably one of these people who, like, like I'm really drawn to ideas, I'm really drawn to thinking, and I, and I kind of like the notion that as a world, as a society, we can grow and we can develop and we can progress in such a way that actually we can dispense with these old superstitions and notions of faith and anything that goes beyond the kind of material realm around us. And that actually we can make for ourselves a better world through our ideas and through our progress. That it's kind of, it's kind of neat and tidy in that way, in a, in a nice, simple, godless universe. But of course, into my personal preferences steps a man called Jesus. And he challenges me by saying, actually, I think you'll find it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think you'll find it's a little bit more wonderful than that. So I'd like to read some of the words of Jesus. You, uh, if you've been around for a few weeks, you'll know we've, we've largely been um, kind of speaking from the Gospel of John. It's one of the, one of the little biographical sketches of Jesus in the Bible. And um, <clears throat> there's a few of these, they're free, just on the table at the back. So if, if you did want to grab one of those, if you've never read it before, um, this is where we've kind of been taking a lot of our thoughts from. So 
Uh, with John Lennon in mind, let's read um, from chapter 3. If you want to follow along, hopefully, the, oh, there we go, the words will come up behind me, or if you've got your phone or your Bible, you can do that too. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we all know that you're a teacher who's come from God, because no one could perform the signs you're doing if God wasn't with him. And Jesus replied, I imagine him sort of looking him in the eye at this moment. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely you can't enter into your mother's womb and be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. It's like the wind. It blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things. Very truly, I, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we've seen, but still, you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That was one of Jesus' favorite ways of talking about himself, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness... That's from an old story we'll talk about later. So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him might have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's a, a very, very rich conversation that Jesus has had there. And I want to put out three things that Jesus says exist. First of all, he says that there is a spiritual, or I suppose to, we could use his language, a heavenly realm which exists very much alongside our material one. He talks of these two kind of realities that go along alongside one another. A, 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 a material, physical realm that's full of objects, full of things that we can touch and measure, you know, music stands and chairs and tables and PA systems and physical objects. But he says there is a very much equal world that exists that is a spiritual or a heavenly one. And that there is some degree of crossover between these two realms. I guess one example of where those two things might cross over would be people. 
So for the Bible, from the Bible's perspective, actually we are not only physical beings. It's not just flesh and blood, but that actually we have another aspect to our life, which is invisible but is very real. For the Bible, all the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings and the spiritual experiences that people may have aren't just the kind of the random firing of neurons in our brain in certain patterns, but there is actually a realm around us that we can't see, Jesus says, like the wind, but we can feel its effect. And we can know the impact of that heavenly realm on earth even right now. I guess for most people in most cultures throughout history, that's kind of been second nature. It's kind of been assumed, it's kind of been obvious that there is a spiritual world. But maybe for us in the 21st century West, maybe that's not quite so straightforward. Maybe that's not quite so assumed. Lots of our greatest thinkers and philosophers throughout history have written great volumes speaking into this debate. But actually, Jesus comes down to some very basic wisdom. He describes it like the wind. He says, you, you can't really measure it. You can't really see where it comes from or where it's going. But you can experience its effect. I think often when people talk about heaven, we kind of have this cartoon-esque vision of heaven that probably comes from jokes and cartoons and children's picture books, which is maybe not the lens through which the Bible would like us to see these things. Somewhere that maybe just like a, a cosmic retirement home that people will go to on their death, a location. Whereas Jesus actually begins to describe to us a heavenly realm, a, a, a spiritual realm that actually intersects with our own. He says, actually, the light has come into the world. When Jesus arrived, he began to preach and say, the kingdom of heaven is now among you. It's here. I'm bringing heaven here. Heaven, he says, is something that has come and is continuing to come and one day will fully come. It's a reality of heaven on earth. And Jesus' preoccupation here with Nicodemus is not so much what bucket is he going to fall into, but his preoccupation is, have you been born spiritually, sir? Have you had this experience of coming alive on the inside? Have you been born spiritually? He says, actually, there's an experience that it's possible for people to go to that is, or go through, which is just as momentous and significant a moment in their life as their birth that actually, just as they were born physically, actually, we need to be born spiritually. We need to come alive to God spiritually. He challenges Nicodemus, has this happened to you, sir? You seem to be a very religious person, but all of it is of no value if you've not come alive on the inside. This is what he challenges us with. First of all, that a spiritual realm exists. The second thing he says exists is that objective right and wrong exist. He uses language like light and darkness, good and evil. I guess it's an ever-increasingly popular idea in our culture that actually all these things are relative. I studied English literature at, at uni, and it's probably one of those kind of last great bastions of postmodernism in the uh, academic world. And uh, I was constantly being confronted with the idea and the notion that Actually, every decision, every action a person could take is morally neutral. That anything, any tag, any label that we wanted to put on it was just a construct of our society. That actually there was no ultimate right or ultimate wrong. And of course, if there is no God, if there is no moral lawgiver, 
If the universe just came about by a collection of physical processes and chemical processes, then logically that has to be true. It has to be. As, as, as difficult as that might be for us, if there is no God, then that must be true. I guess some of the problems with this begin to arise, though. First of all, you know, probably there won't be many people in this room this week who have not felt hurt, hard done by, aggrieved by somebody or something, or let down in some way this week. Anytime somebody kind of fails us or lets us down or breaks our heart or lies to us or steals from us, instantly we feel inherently this kind of feeling of being aggrieved. If I was to come down here and you know, give you a right, smash in the face now, you would probably feel quite rightly put out. You think, I, I, I didn't have the right to do that. I didn't have the right to inflict that hurt on you. Why did you feel that? Because actually, inherent in our universe, there's that notion of right and wrong, of our rights. If there's no wrong, then also there must be no right. And then, of course, if you take the argument of moral relativism to its natural conclusion, which we must do, then we end up justifying the likes of genocide and child ex exploitation and injustice and many other things which I hope we wouldn't <laughs> seek to justify. So for me, the sense that actually there is a universal sense of good and evil in the universe, to me, is evidence that there is a God behind it all, a moral lawgiver who will ask us to give an account one day for how we've lived our lives. Ben uh, shared a quote a couple of weeks ago, which is, is very good, um, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I think it bears repeating. And it addresses the issue of, well, okay, I can agree with that. I can accept that. I can accept that really that, you know, there must be, you know, the, the, the abusers and the warlords of this world must be held to an account. But what about us? Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago said this, if only it was so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessarily only to separate them off from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Jesus puts it differently. He puts it in a parable. And in his parable, there's, there's, there's two guys. There's, there's the Pharisee, the, sort of the holy roller of the day, and then there's the tax collector who in their world was the scum of the earth. And it says, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and another a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, <laughs> extortioners and unjust and adulterers, and, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this man, not the Pharisee, went to his house justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says, first of all, that there is a spiritual reality that exists. He says, second of all, that good and evil exists in all of us. And third of all, despite those things, he says, thirdly, that a way that we can know God 
exists. And it's thankfully a way that is not based on religion. I think this is probably the easiest of John Lennon's, John Lennon's challenges to deal with. I think if you honestly read through the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those accounts of Jesus' life, I don't think you'll find an atheist in history who's got more disdain for religion than Jesus Christ. He hates it. He says there's a way that we can know God not based on religion. Because inherently every religious system in the world, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to kind of disparage them or dishonor them in any way, I'm just kind of drawing a parallel. Every religious system in the world is based on the idea that if we can just keep sufficient rules, if we can obey sufficient precepts, if we can do enough things, if we can obey enough rituals, if we can go through the motions, then eventually, maybe, possibly, potentially, we might attain to the knowledge of God. And it becomes a mechanism of control. It becomes a mechanism of, 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 of putting people through their paces and, and, and measuring them up. And Jesus turns all this on his head. He says there's a way to know God. It's not about us getting up to heaven. It's about Jesus bringing heaven here. He says that no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Me, the Son of Man. He says I'm bringing the light into the world. He's less occupied with where are you going. He's more occupied with I'm bringing heaven to earth. Jesus brought with him the mercy and the forgiveness so that anyone who accepts him can fully and freely know God. That's why Jesus didn't go to the, he didn't go to the religious classes of his day. He didn't go and spend time with the ruling elites. He went and hung out with the prostitutes. He went and hung out with guys who were drunk in the gutter. Those were the people that he was there for. So Jesus says, first of all, that a spiritual world exists around us. It's real. You need to be born into it. He says, second of all, that right and wrong exist, that that matters inside the heart of every single one of us. And thirdly, he says that there is a way to know God that exists. We can have it. So I think as we look at these issues of heaven and hell, we, we need to think clearly about what God means when he says them. I think there's, 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 a kind of a, there's, there's a caricature of um, the heaven and hell narrative in our society, which kind of goes something like this, that I'm kind of going along in my life, and I'm doing some good and some bad, for better or worse, I'm living, and eventually a moment is going to come, I don't know when it's going to happen, and, and my life is going to end, and at this point I'm going to drop off into one of two buckets. Either I'm going to drop off into the heaven bucket, which is you know, floating around on a cloud for all eternity or something, whatever that is, singing lots of songs, Matt Redman on instant repeat, you know. Or I'm going to drop off into the hell bucket. And it's kind of some vision of Dante's Inferno, and it's, you know, pokers and flames and, I don't know, just we don't even want to think what twisted things God's up to down there. It's just, and this is the kind of narrative that we have in our culture. And there's some bits of Bible mixed up in that, and there's some bits of truth mixed up in that, and there's some bits of God mixed up in that, but overall, this is not the lens through which Jesus is trying to help us to see this. He's talking about bringing heaven to us. I think we also need to think clearly about what Jesus talks about when he is talking about salvation, being saved or being condemned. 
And Jesus used the word saved. What does he think we're being saved into? He says we're not being saved into a church. We're not being saved into a religion. We're not being saved into the kind of I've got my ticket to heaven when I die club. He says we're being saved into a relationship, a living, personal, intimate, knowing relationship with the Father in heaven who loves us, who made us, who created us to know him personally. Equally, what are we being saved from? Well, we are being saved out of not having a relationship with God who loved us eternally. We're being saved from being cut off from that relationship because of the bad things that we've done. And Jesus again and again taught, actually, that relationship doesn't begin the moment of our physical death. It doesn't begin the moment that we, that we, that we drop off and go to heaven, so to speak. Actually, it begins at the moment that we become born spiritually, that we come alive to God on the inside. It's a matter of knowing Him. Jesus says a transformation happens inside us that is so profound, it's, it's, it's equal to the moment that we were born. You know, we all kind of think, well, what's, you know, what have been the momentous moments in our life? Maybe we got married or we graduated or we got that job or whatever it was. There's probably no greater, more momentous moment in your life than when you were born, right? You know, everything kind of hangs on that. But he says, actually, you can be spiritually born as well. When Jesus talked about eternal life, he actually clarified what he meant. So he was saying, God so loved the world, it's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, that he gave me, Jesus, that he came as Jesus and died on the cross so that everyone who believes in him wouldn't perish, but what? Have eternal life. It probably bears thinking about what he meant by that. He actually clarifies his own statement a few pages on in chapter 17. He's been talking about this for, for some months, and he says, well, now this is eternal life. This is what I've been talking about, guys. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, it's not just about being around forever. It's life. It's life that we were made for, the life that we were created for, that relationship with God. John wrote another, another book again many years later in 1 John 5. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. He says, actually, we are saved into relationship, to know, to intimately, personally know the God who made us. Being saved isn't about going to a retirement home in heaven, floating on a cloud, playing your harp. It's about continuing and growing in that beautiful relationship with God that starts now in the heavenly world in all eternity when this physical world is long gone. It's what we're saved into. I remember quite a number of years ago now, that moment for me when I experienced for the first time what it meant to come alive spiritually after months of asking antagonistic questions and sitting on the fence, I began to be drawn by this inexplicable pull on my heart, something which was actually more compelling than all of the evidence and all the arguments and things that I was listening to, which were very helpful, but there was a drawing on my heart. And for that first moment where I was able to say, Jesus, I, I believe, <laughs> and, and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the ability in that moment to come alive on the inside, to know God like I never knew was possible. It's what he wants for every single one of us. 
And equally, I think when we, we, as much as we need to think about clearly about what Jesus was talking about when he talked about us being saved, I think we need to think clearly about what he was talking about when he talks about being condemned. It's the bit we don't like. I think hell has been interpreted in a lot of different ways, and maybe for, maybe for many of us, it's the thing that we're kind of worried about looking into. I think, for those of you who are Christians here, maybe you kind of resonate with this, that we kind of have this nagging fear in the back of our mind that at some, that some point we're going to discover something, like something's going to come out on WikiLeaks, or we're going to open a bit of the Bible that we didn't get to very often and have a look at it and go, oh, I didn't realize that bit. As if there's something about God, maybe that wasn't, didn't make him quite as good or quite as just or quite as right as, as we would have liked to think of him. So we need to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about perishing and condemnation. Maybe a helpful way to talk about this is to ask, well, what should a just God, if God is a just God, what should a just God do with people who have done very genuine, very wrong things and yet haven't embraced, haven't chosen to embrace the forgiveness and the mercy and the fresh start that Jesus offers. What should a good God do? Well, I suppose, first of all, he could, could, he could send them to the cartoon version of hell. He could send them to the sort of proverbial Dante's Inferno forever, a world where they are constantly, consistently, eternally being hurt by God. I think there's a couple of problems with this stereotype. First of all, it's not just. A God who confines people there consistently to punish and torture them, however severe their wrongdoing, even for the Stalins and the Hitlers of the world, for eternity, is not just. Because eventually, the punishment will exceed the crime. It has to, logically, for anyone. And second of all, I, I don't think, if we look rightly, that it's biblical. I think it's more of a caricature from our culture than from the Bible. Second, there are many today who would like to hypothesize that maybe just these people would just cease to exist. Maybe we'll just stop when we die. To me, maybe compared to the Dante's Inferno, that seems more merciful, although I think actually the, the notion that Jesus is saying, come and be in loving, warm relationship with me or I'll kill you, isn't necessarily the merciful option that we were hoping it might be. And some will argue that if you kind of read the Bible in the right way and squint your eyes while you do it, and you can just about make it out to make, to make it say that, maybe you can. But I still don't think it's God's best. Thirdly, I suppose there could be some sort of purgatory, a kind of system where people could be disciplined and, and, and reformed for a period of time and then rehabilitated back into heavenly society. I suppose maybe this has more of a ring of sense to it, but actually it doesn't really add up. We understand that salvation is being brought into a relationship, the idea that actually we can imprison somebody for a while until they're kind of bullied in back into that relationship doesn't really make sense. And again, it falls down because it's just not in Scripture. Neither the word nor the concept of purgatory are really anywhere in its pages. Fourthly, God... I suppose, could just overlook sin. There could be no hell. This is what John Lennon was inviting us to assume. God could just allow everyone into 
relationship with Him, into the community of believers that He's building, people who love Him and worship Him and are now with Him. He could give everybody the, the, the experience of, of, of knowing and being in relationship with Him forever. What if there was no moment of reckoning? What if there was no moment where people gave an account for how they lived their lives? What if there was no justice? Sounds good, maybe. What does it? Actually, in that case, there would literally be no justice in the universe. Sometimes we say that, don't we? Oh, is there no justice in this world? In this case, there actually wouldn't be. There actually wouldn't be. God would be in a position of judge, able to put things right, able to bring to justice the abuser, the warlord, the oppressor. Yet he would be defaulting on his duty and casually letting them off. I'd like to suggest, actually, that would be a miscarriage of justice of galactic proportions. I also don't think it's a merciful option. It wouldn't make the heavenly realm any better than this earthly realm is now. All of the injustice and all of the intolerance and all of the compromise and all of the hardship and all of the sin and all of the poverty and all of the problems in this world now would carry on into eternity. And again, predictably, it falls foul of the fact that it's not what the Bible suggests. So what then? We've kind of dispelled a lot of logical options, and yet none of these is biblical, and none of them seems good enough for God. So we come to the conclusion the most merciful, most just thing God could possibly do with those who have not embraced His offer of forgiveness is hell. Not, not our caricature of hell, but the Bible's version of hell. How does Jesus describe hell? How does the Bible describe it? It primarily uses a language, a language of separation. That actually those who choose not to embrace relationship with God, to be separated from Him, will continue being separated from Him into eternity. Allowing people to continue in their lifestyle, refusing forgiveness, refusing relationship with God, being separated from Him and His love and His glory eternally. In 2 Thessalonians verse 1, Paul describes, they will be punished with everlasting destruction, being shut out from the presence of the Lord in the glory of His might. What is this perishing? What is this destruction Jesus spoke about? It is being shut out. It's a confinement. It's being kept away from the relationship which they don't currently have. And in light of all the other possibilities, God allowing people what they want to continue in their path of life, separated from God forever, is evidently the most merciful thing God could do. Tim Keller writes like this. He says, hell then is the trajectory of a soul, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God, on a trajectory into infinity. And I'm not saying this this morning to, to, to try and put it across to you that, well, you know, the, the, the real version of hell is not so bad, it's, it's not so awful. Actually, I believe it is awful. Jesus described it as a place of darkness. He described it as a place of weeping, of despair. 
Hell is a tragedy. God hates. He shares his heart in Ezekiel 18. He, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in condemning anyone. So turn to me and live. God doesn't like the reality of hell. It breaks his heart that anyone would be cut off from him at all, let alone forever. For, for those of you here this morning who are Christians, I'd like to suggest if, if you've never grappled with the question, how could a loving God possibly condemn someone to hell? You probably haven't thought about it enough. It's a question we need to grapple with. It's a question that is difficult. It's a question that I believe God grapples with, and we need to. There's a bit in Psalm 40 where David is talking about sometimes where God actually has to restrain his own sense of mercy. He restrains his mercy. It's that sense that, that God was kind of looking down at the, at the things going on in the world and the awful abuses and everything else, and yet he loves the perpetrator. He loves the evildoer so, so much that he's saying, you know what, if I didn't restrain my forgiveness, if I didn't restrain my mercy, I'd just bless a lot of them. Like, I, know, I know it's awful, and I know it's hurting people, and I know it's unjust, but I just, I just love them so much, it's who I am. I just want to give them all the riches of heaven. I want to bless them with everything that it is to know me, with all the glory. I want to give it to them. I don't care. I'm just going to love on them. David said, actually, if God didn't restrain his own mercy, then that's just what would happen. Because alongside this question of, that we have to wrestle with, how could a loving God possibly allow someone to hell, to be cut off from Him forever. We have to ask the equal question of how could a just God not do that? How could a God who is just ever bring anyone into the joy of relationship with Him? It's an equally important question. And I, I believe there is this great tension in the heart of God between His love and His justice. I think for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we're tempted to think that on some cosmic sovereign level, this all just sort of clicks for God. You know, it's just easy for Him because, you know, he, He's way beyond anything we can comprehend and it, it just kind of makes sense in His mind and it's okay, it's easy. I, I don't think that's the case. I think God grapples with this. I've been reading through the book of Hosea a lot recently and probably more dramatically than anywhere else in, in the Bible, you, you see God's heart on display. And you see the tussle as he's angry and he is looking at the, the sin of his people and what is happening and he's preparing for that moment of judgment. And yet you see the, you see the pain in his heart as he's wrestling with that I, I love them. And I, how, how, he's asking himself the question, how can I do this? It's a wrestle. It's a tussle. It's not easy. It's not somehow cosmically easy for him. And ultimately, this is a tussle. This is the desire to be both fully loving and fully just, which leads Jesus to the cross. That he's so committed to both of those things. He's so committed to his love and his mercy for us, and yet he is so committed that he says, in all good conscience, I cannot allow justice not to be done. Those two things drive him to make the ultimate sacrifice that he would come and become a person, he would come and live as a man for one purpose, that he would die on the cross. It was his way of deliberately taking places, exchanging places with us, with humanity. That he would take upon himself, that he would stand in the place of justice and punishment to give us the opportunity to walk free. 
God so loved the world. He gave, He came as Jesus so that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish, wouldn't be cut off from God for eternity, that darkness, that weeping, but would have eternal life, would be brought into that loving, wonderful relationship with Him. No condemnation. And so Jesus' appeal to every single one of us, Jesus' appeal to the world, to humanity, isn't to come and get religion. It's not to come and take on a new set of rules or come and join a church or come and improve yourself somehow. His invitation, he says to us, could, could you believe, could you bring yourself to believe that I love you enough that I would hang on a cross Take your place so that you could live, so that you could experience the wonder and the beauty and the joy and the beyond our wildest imaginable dreams, pleasure of knowing God and growing in that relationship with Him forever. That's what He is inviting us into. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If I was standing here this morning as someone who had any credentials in terms of my character, I would utterly fall foul of this. I don't speak this message. I'm not making this invitation to you this morning as someone who had it figured out, but I know this is true because I was one of those ones that Jesus went to. I was one of those ones that wasn't doing the right thing. I've got no right to stand here and pronounce judgment on anyone for anything that I've done because I'm fairly sure that I would be in a much lower bracket than you. And yet the invitation is to come. The invitation is to believe. I'd just like to invite the band just to come back up. Time is almost gone. We're going to head into a song. Just before we do that, I want to invite, on behalf of Jesus, anyone who wants to say, maybe for the first time this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to come and believe and receive the forgiveness that he has for me. And when Jesus, Jesus preached this message a lot, and whenever he did that, he always kind of validated it by healing people who were unwell, people who were physically unwell, people who had been injured, people who were emotionally, mentally unwell. And he was able, by releasing that healing on their bodies, to kind of testify that the message that he was giving was true. And many people experienced the, the life change that first came from being physically healed, and it opened up their hearts to the reality that, my word, I think the message this man's got for my eternal soul, for my life, is, is even more important. And actually, we see all through history, the very first Christians in the church, they did the same thing. So whenever they, whenever they spoke this message of Jesus, after he had returned to the Father, when his physical life was done, Whenever they gave this message and whenever they invited people to come and believe, they would also pray for people who weren't well. And they saw many, many of them get better in Jesus' name. And again, that kind of validated the message that he was giving. And, and many people experienced that as they got physically better, suddenly they realized, wow, there's a God who really does love me. Maybe he did die for me. And even through the, through the centuries, even up until the present day, Christians, as we make this appeal, as we 
invite people to come and believe on him for the first time. Actually, we often pray for the sick. I've per- my back personally was healed by somebody in church praying for me. I've seen people healed of dyslexia. I've seen people healed of asthma. I've watched people's limbs grow in front of my eyes. It's what God does to show his kindness towards people. Can we just stand together? We're going to go into a song in a moment, but I, just in this moment, want us to not miss an invitation from God. And there's a, there's a few guys down the front here, men and women from our leadership team, who would love to pray with you. First of all, if you want to say for the first time, I, I, want, to, I want to believe in this Jesus, this whole kind of coming alive on the inside thing, like I, I, I need that. Maybe you've been around in church for a while. Maybe you've been like Nicodemus. Maybe you've been getting a bit more religious, but actually, you know something needs to happen. You need to put your trust in Him for the first time. You need to say, I'm sorry, and I thank you, and please would you come into my life. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you know that you're not well. Maybe you've got an injury. Maybe you're struggling with depression. Maybe you've got an illness of some kind. And I would love to invite you to make a step of faith this morning. There's a little bit of space here at the front where we can pray for you. And just in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come, whether you want to believe in Jesus for the first time, or whether you want us to pray for you, that you be healed. And and I'm believing this morning that there are people next week who are going to share, this is what God did for me. So what I'm going to do first, I'm just going to pray. It's just going to give us some words. It's going to give us some language that you might actually just be praying quietly yourself in your own mind. And then if you would like to make either of those prayers your own, if you want to personally say before God, yeah, that's me, I want to believe, or I'd like to get better this morning, I'm going to invite you to do something really brave and just come down the front. Everybody else is just going to be singing, so it's all right. They're not really looking at you. Let me pray first of all. My prayer is going to be really simple. It's going to be thank you, God. It's going to be sorry, God. It's going to be please, God. Jesus, I thank you so much that you love me in spite of everything. Everything wrong that I've done. You love me so much that you would die on a cross to take it all away. And I'm sorry for those ways that I've lived I'm sorry for the ways that I've hurt people, for the ways that I've hurt you. Please forgive me. And please, can I be born spiritually this morning? Please, can I come alive on the inside? Please, can I come into relationship with you, God, like I've never known before? And I pray, Father, this morning for any here who are not well, in their mind, in their body, in their emotions, And I pray right now, you just pour that loving kindness into their life with your healing touch. We're just going to go back into a song. I'd love you to be very, very courageous. If you want to respond to either of those two things, would you come down here now? I'm going to turn my mic off so I can pray for some of you guys. Others in the leadership team will come and pray for you as well. As we come back into that song, come now. Come boldly if you want to be prayed for to get better. If you want to be prayed for to come and believe in Jesus for the first time. Amen. Let's come. How great the cat.